Hello, Hardcore Finance Podcast listeners, and welcome to the Hardcore Finance Podcast with Shimon and Alex. Today, we have a very special guest, Ravi Sud, who's a financier uh, who's focused on emerging markets. Mr. Sud was the founder, former CEO of Navina Asset Management, a Toronto-based investment firm that was acquired by a major, a major financial institution. Ravi also serves as the chairman of Galani Gold, uh, Jade Power Trust, and even Company Incorporated. Previously, Ravi was a director of ICC Labs, which was acquired, uh, and Elgin Mining. And so we're so happy to have Ravi on the podcast, and I'm sure we'll get into gold, store of value, wealth management, gold versus Bitcoin, and lots of other incredible topics. So Ravi, welcome, and tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get started in gold? Uh, well, first of all, thanks uh, for having me on, guys. Really looking forward to the discussion. Uh, my 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 uh, road to gold uh, is a pretty indirect one and an unusual one. Uh, I, my background, uh, education-wise, is math and computer science. Uh, did a degree at a, at the University of Waterloo, and I entered the workforce in the '90s, which was, of course, the, the halcyon days of the internet boom. And uh, through a quirk of circumstance, uh, well, a long story unto itself. I ended up in the investment business working at a family office and uh, not, not where I thought I would uh, be, uh, but uh, it ended up uh, changing the course of my life. But one, one memory of the first memory I could tell you about me with gold um, is me sitting in my office and uh, having different uh, gold companies come through our office, presenting their investment case, raising money, what have you, and thinking to myself, what on earth are these guys thinking? Uh, do we even use gold for anything anymore? And typically uh, at that stage in the industry and, and some truth to it still today, uh, all the people involved in it, the entrepreneurs were older, uh, they weren't the most dynamic presenters um, and it was, uh, it was kind of like the tail end of the cycle as well. So it was, it, it was not people who were inspiring uh, excitement uh, in the industry at all. Uh, so I, I had a very negative uh, first impression on gold for sure. Uh, but as I became uh, uh, more involved in the investment industry, uh, running money, uh, running various portfolios and learning more about macroeconomics and um, had a really fantastic opportunity with the firm I was with to work directly with uh, people that, I mean, you know, most of us can only dream about having access to, and I had the, the great privilege of working directly with them for years. I worked with uh, John Crow, who was the uh, governor of the Bank of Canada for many years, uh, also a senior person in the IMF, and at one point, uh, chairman of the board of governors of, uh, a board of directors of central bank governors, uh, and played a very senior, senior role there. Uh, also, Paul Volcker former chairman of the Fed, uh, was on our advisory board, uh, Dr. Sidney Jones, uh, Deputy Secretary uh, of Treasury Department, uh, and Ken Curtis, who was at the time uh, Chief Economist for Goldman Sachs Asia, Vice Chairman of Goldman Sachs. So huge exposure for somebody like me who had what we call more of a technical background in computer science uh, to get exposure to all these things in uh, all these guys with this great macroeconomic wisdom. And my thinking really changed over time to realize that uh, one, if you're an investor and trying to understand the economy and the business cycle that we're in today, uh, you better spend some time thinking about monetary policy and what's been going on uh, at that level. In particular, 
what's happened since the financial crisis uh, that kicked off in 07 and in, in earnest in 2008. Uh, it's really been the primary driving factor. And I went from somebody who was completely disinterested in gold and monetary policy, not, not sure that I could have explained what it was, to uh, but interested in mining uh, from an investor's point of view and base metals and, and, and different metals that I could see the application, the supply demand imbalance to in 2007 and eight, starting to get interested in gold uh, in its function as a monetary asset. And then uh, after that, getting very interested uh, in gold and, and also ultimately Bitcoin and other potential stores of value. Uh, and that really became sort of the main investment theme for me personally and everything I was doing uh, from there on in uh, to the point where in 2010, I started a company, uh, Galani Gold, uh, with the express intent of becoming a gold producer and creating for myself and, and by extension, all the other investors, um, a great investment vehicle for people to participate in what I thought was a coming huge appreciation in gold price. I think my, uh, with hindsight, I could say my timing was not perfect. I, I started that company in 2010. Uh, our first operation was a gold mine that we acquired in Botswana in 2011. Uh, literally within days, uh, so we kicked off operations within days of what was to be uh, the peak in gold price, uh, August 2011. And it was largely um, in moving in a downward direction uh, for the next uh, five or six years. Very difficult to operate it, uh, or create shareholder value in that environment, uh, but great way to build a company, a lean and mean tough company uh, that can stand the test of time. If you can survive that kind of environment where your principal uh, product is going down in price uh, for half a decade, then um, you, you're in great shape uh, going forward. And so that that's, Kind of my journey to gold, uh, not not exactly a, a straight line by any means, uh, but a, a really a transformation of my thinking and realization that I got to be thinking about monetary policy, and we all do. Uh, any of us who are interested in markets and, and trying to understand where the value of assets are going. Yeah, this is a fascinating topic uh, for me uh, because I, I just like you, I didn't know anything about gold uh, until in my MBA course. I remember two, uh, two, like I went to a very, uh, both of us, both Alex and I went to a very Keynesian school. Uh, Kellogg, it's pretty much like in Chicago, our arch rivals were the University of Chicago and people basically thought, oh, those Milton Friedman people want to like starve the children. We want to like benefit the children by printing money. Uh, and so it was very funny because like I had one course, Money Markets and the Fed, uh, with a guy that was, you know, very senior at the Fed in another course, international uh, finance or something. And both of them were so negative towards gold, but like things just didn't make sense to me that they said, you know, they were like, yeah, the only thing that causes inflation is inflation expectations. Here's a bunch of charts that show, you know, printing money does not cause inflation. I'm like, okay, but what causes inflation expectations? Like, it's not an answer to say that what causes inflation. And, and then uh, through Bitcoin, actually, I went down the gold uh, rabbit hole and I find it fascinating, especially like kind of the, the historical, uh, you know, store of value properties. Like I, I heard this thing where like the same quantity of gold kind of bought you the same things throughout history, no matter what governments did so that was fascinating to me so i'd love to hear uh first very quickly like what is your uh kind of bullish case for gold like why do you think gold is a good investment and then maybe as a follow-up we can dive into comparing 
you know, go to the stock market and maybe to Bitcoin as like different ways uh, to store value. But maybe we can just start with like, what, what's your bullish case for gold? Like, where do you think it is going and why, uh, given the recent uh, government actions of, of printing lots of money all over the world? Sure. And it, it's um, very difficult, I think, uh, to have any credibility in assigning some sort of price target to gold. Uh, it is when you're talking about a store of value. Uh, we can we can talk about you know here's where it was here's what's happened since here's where it should be, but the fact is uh, gold if I compare it to something like copper, uh, two factors which generally dictate the supply of a good, uh, the supply and demand, that doesn't really come into play the same way on on gold does it? So with the if I use copper as an example, and apologies for the circuitous answer to a, a simple question that you posed. But if uh, copper, if the price of copper is dropping below the cost of production of copper, the marginal cost, production will come offline. And we need copper for things. We need it for wires, for pipes, various products that are made. You need copper, period. Uh, and the demand for copper goes up and down based on the economic cycle, uh, based on the intensity of different things that are being built in that cycle. Uh, supply goes up and down based on uh, that price and based on production coming on and offline around the world. Uh, for gold, you can kind of throw most of that out of the window. It's almost the only thing in the world because uh, if you look at the amount that's produced, depending on the year and where we are in history, it's one or two percent of the total supply of gold that's above ground is being added to the to supply every year. So if you produced none of it uh, or you produced twice as much, in a given year, of course, it will have an effect at the margin, but it, but it's not going to be the primary determinant of the price. Similarly, on demand, uh, yeah, there are some applications uh, that you need gold for, and in fact, uh, with my uh, mining company, we have three operations. Uh, one of them sells all of our gold production to Samsung, uh, which use it. We don't know exactly what they use it for, uh, but we can presume. Uh, that's none of our business, but we could presume it's used in their cell phone business, in their consumer electronics business. Uh, but that's a very small, uh, small part of the gold market and probably always will be. So unlike copper, throw that out the window. So for me, my focus on trying to come up with the investment case for gold and, and work around that and develop a business around that is really directional. And I can tell you this, if you are in a bear market for gold, you're going to be very hard pressed uh, to create value for shareholders and make money for yourself in the gold business, uh, like anything else, but uh, perhaps more so for gold. And, and the, uh, the, the inverse is true as well, of course. So if gold's moving up, um, not to disparage my own efforts or those of my team, but a monkey at a typewriter uh, could figure out how to make money in, in, in the gold business in a, in a rapidly rising market. So the focus for me is to figure out what's that direction and and what's the uh, what's what's the uh, angle of ascent or descent? And for me, that that arrow is definitely pointed upwards for gold. And it's back to this monetary uh, look at what's happening in the monetary base and how we've sort of uh, patched over the issues that really came to a head in 2007 and exploded in 2008. They were never fixed. Uh, sure, banks uh, increased the their improved their balance sheets and, and their reserve process. Uh, some of the more uh, uh, problematic practices were curtailed and legislated, but uh, all, all those issues are still there. And we really floated uh, our global economic boat uh, with huge injection, injections of capital 
uh, really borrowing from the future uh, to uh, stabilize things today. The theory on monetary policy is we can smooth over a business cycle by doing such things. That's always, always been the theory. Uh, in practice, has it really uh, succeeded? Uh, it, perhaps uh, the pessimist, uh, such as myself, would say it succeeded in doing one thing, which is actually increasing the amplitude of the business cycle as opposed to smoothing it over. And I think that's uh, definitely going to be the case this time around. What we'll see only years from now when the dust is settled, uh, if it settles, that uh, we've uh, held it together, held it together, kept the ship uh, afloat uh, for as long as possible using all this bag of tricks that the central bankers have invented, uh, but uh, at a huge cost. And that cost will be borne uh, by people in the form of inflation. And uh, as an investor and somebody trying to not only protect their assets, but in, in fact, uh, create profits and increase, um, increase the value of my company and the value of my shares, um, we think that gold is, is one place that we can be where you will go from a, a place in right now where it's uh, almost laughed at. Uh, I'd say the more educated and uh, more conventionally uh, uh, intellectual one is now. Uh, the more you're going to hate gold. Uh, I mean, it's very, uh, it's it, it's certainly in vogue. Hey, Ravi, I think we um we got you on mute by accident. Yeah, we lo we lost you, and now you're on mute. So, uh, coming from that position, I, I I come to that conclusion that the arrow is pointed upwards, and that the angle of ascent is going to be steep. And if you put a gun to my head and say, "Okay, Ravi, you got to put a, you got to give us some numbers and price targets on it," I'll I'll go back to the same approach that others who try and understand and uh, prognosticate about the price of gold, and point to where was it last time where it overshot, and we had uh, something that resembled uh, this kind of scenario uh, that was uh, blow off top in 1980, uh, 800 dollars on gold. Uh, you can inflation adjust that, adjust that a couple different ways. You use the official inflation statistics uh, and you'll and give you different numbers, but that'll put you something into the high 2000s as a theoretical blow off top price on gold on this cycle. Uh, I think that's probably uh, uh, two observations on that. One is those official statistics are not very representative of actual inflation over that 41 year time period. Uh, and second, it's a moving target. As we know, inflation is happening now and it's accelerating. So if that if that model punches at $2,700, $2,800 gold, that number is going up as we speak, as that inflation number kicks in. Uh, the other way to look at it is broad money supply. And if I look at uh, growth in M2 from 1980 till today uh, and apply that to that blow off top number of $800 41 years ago, you're going to get something over ten thousand uh, dollars, and that number is moving. That is a moving uh, per ounce. That number is moving even faster, uh, obviously, than the uh, the official inflation statistic. Uh, is either of them a particularly accurate way to predict the the potential peak price in gold? I don't think so. Uh, but again, it it, it goes to my uh, my uh, view is you got to figure out the direction, and the direction is up, and it should be much higher. Uh, i.e. a steep angle of ascent on the gold price. 
Yeah, that's very cool. And so, um, yeah, we've been talking a lot uh, on this podcast about like the, you know, the implications of all the money printing. So I totally get uh, those price targets. Now, one very interesting thing uh, that I've never been able to get like one answer from everybody, like everybody has a different angle to this question. So I'd love to hear your take on it. So usually when people think of inflation protection, like when you think of normal people, not investors, right? Uh, there's two things. There's like real estate and the stock market. So the idea is like with real estate, you're leveraged like five to one. So, you know, if you kind of look at like the way that your down payment uh, value grows over time, that's what most people use for inflation protection if they don't know anything about finance and, and stocks too, right? So like people put money on their 401k and then the idea is like, yeah, the government can print more money, but that means that the uh, companies will have a higher pricing power. And so the, the, the value of the equity will go up. So what do you think of gold versus real estate versus the stock market? Like, do, do you see it as like uh, uh, the same type of inflation protection? Do you think gold has advantages uh, over these two um, assets? Or like, how should people think about allocating their capital uh, among those three? Uh, I think, uh, well, I think you've, ultimately, what are you trying to figure out? You're trying to figure out how to protect and ultimately grow your wealth. So, uh, you know, I don't think one should be obsessing over one sector or the other. You have to ask exactly the question that you've posed. Should I have money in all these sectors? Uh, none of them, only one of them, and how much? And if uh, I break it down to uh, looking at all three of those, as you said, they are an opportunity to hedge against inflation. Your company profits, in theory, should go up. Some will be better positioned than others. Um, I know, for example, uh, one of the safest things that you can invest in the utility business great steady stream of profits, but let's look at some of those companies. Some of them have 20 and 25 year uh, fixed price contracts, very secure, excellent in a low inflation environment. Some of them do have inflation uh, uh, clauses to those contracts, some don't. You could be earning a, a company that's earning a billion dollars in profit now, that in 20 years, you could say with a high degree of certainty, will also be earning a billion dollars in profit, which may be a disaster from, uh, from an investor's point of view if you have runaway inflation. Conversely, and I don't know anything uh, about the company, but I'll just use uh, I'll use it as an example. Nike, maybe Nike can pass on all of its cost increases and continue to enjoy the same kind of margin in an inflationary environment on its various great products that it makes. And maybe as an investor in their stock, that's a great way to protect yourself against inflation. Uh, real estate could be the same thing. Uh, you know, uh, I often uh, point out to people all this the stories of. Uh, you know, you bought that house or that piece of property 50 years ago for $1,000. Can you believe it? Uh, this is, you know, uh, you know, so much foresight. And, and in fact, uh, on a purchasing power parity basis, in many of those cases, it, it's really the same. Uh, has it gone up in value? Sure, in, in paper currency it has. But uh, somebody earning $5,000 a year, maybe bought a $10,000 house, uh, and uh, earning 500, that same person would be earning $500,000 a year and, and, and a million dollar house now. Uh, so I, I think there's a role for all three of those asset classes in this inflationary environment. And uh, many of us uh, have the opportunity or, or even the requirement to, to own the place that we live. That is hopefully an asset for, for many people that can, can protect them somewhat from inflation. Uh, but one thing about gold that's different from the stock market or from real estate is you're not really betting on any people, management team, business, technology concepts. Um, it's uh, it's a shiny uh, it's a shiny metal. 
uh, and it is what it is. Uh, it's got various chemical properties uh, that have made it into what it is over the last few thousand years, and it's nothing more and nothing less. Uh, real estate, if you're in a good location, that may really benefit you. If you're in a poor location or there's an economic downturn and you own commercial real estate, uh, maybe you can't lease out the building and that uh, and you, you're actually losing money on it now. So uh, there, there are pluses and minuses, obviously, to both uh, equities and to, um, to real estate that aren't there uh, in gold. You may be able to make a lot more money in real estate or in the stock market than gold, uh, but the opposite is also true. Uh, the, only, the other thing I'd highlight, the, the asset class or the key one that you didn't discuss uh, or, or flag or float was uh, fixed income uh, bonds. I think if we are subscribing to this inflation uh, hypothesis, then you really have to consider, you know, what do I need to have any allocation to that where I'd have a nominal, effectively zero real return uh, or uh, uh, absolute return, but your real return adjusted for inflation is almost certainly going to be negative. And, uh, you know, those instruments have a role to play in the financial ecosystem, obviously. Uh, but if I'm an investor that does not have to, by mandate or other requirement, own fixed income instruments, uh, and I don't have a, I have a time horizon where I don't need the liquidity in the next three, six, nine, 12 months, whatever your time frame, uh, I would say don't own any uh, right now. So uh, definitely a place for real estate, definitely a place for equities. Uh, but gold is, uh, is kind of the dumb the dumb, uh, uh, you know, keep it simple, stupid uh, hedge against inflation always has been, and, and I think will continue to be. Yes, yeah, so you raised a, a bunch of good points, and uh, wow, th there are many uh, areas that we can go with this. But I want to ask you a couple blocking and tackling questions, and come back to a couple of themes. <clears throat> Excuse me, but there's one thing you talked about: this purchase power parity. Um, many people miss this, and we talk about this on our show a lot, and we even look at. If you take most asset classes, uh, especially post-2007, 2008, and you use the Fed balance sheet as a denominator, many are flat, just fundamentally flat. And so, yeah, your balance goes up. But actually, in real terms, you can use kind of the Fed balance sheet as, as, a, as a, a proxy for purchase power, if you will, in the long term your purchase power actually stays the same. And a lot of people, uh, like you said, I love this uh, analogy or the story that you told about people saying, well, you know, I bought real estate for 10,000 and now can you believe it? It costs a million. Yeah, I can believe it. There's inflation, right? You didn't outperform any market. You got zero alpha on your real estate investment other than you could have put it anywhere else and it would have given the same results. Um, and I think it's very important for our audience to look at things, uh, you know, in context. I look at try to seek some sort of alpha when we're looking at investments and and understand that you know when the market goes up all of it goes up and so while you might be more wealthy on paper in terms of nominal dollar terms in real dollar terms like you said about bonds it could be a parity or negative and so you're not really getting anything and, and the quantum I, of uh, sorry to interject but yeah. uh just to take us back uh, to uh the end of world war ii in the united states and the real return on bonds troughed at, uh, you know, anybody I, I, I say this to uh, goes away and fact checks it because it's just such an unbelievable number. Real returns troughed, uh, real rates, uh, so your, your real return on, on um, T-bills troughed at minus 40% a year. 
So when we talk about, oh my goodness, there's $20 trillion of negative yielding debt uh, in the world, whether it's negative uh, 25 basis points or negative a percent, whatever it is, uh, let's, we'll, we'll only be able to do this accurately with the benefit of hindsight. But let's look back at what the real rate is there. It's probably something uh, negative high single digits once you affect for inflation. Again, we'll only know the real inflation in, in, in the years to come looking backwards. But can it get more negative? Uh, yes. And we have relatively recent history, the good data post-World War II, US debt to GDP exceeded 100%. And you had a bunch of very positive factors working, uh, giving uh, basically tailwinds to the effort to uh, inflate their way out of that debt position. And it worked, but a big part of that was hugely negative real rates. And I think that all arrows are pointed at happening again, and we're not anywhere near the how low they can go. Uh, I, I think most people alive today would say, well, that's just totally impossible. You just can't get to net real rates of negative 40%. It happens, it's happening as we speak in various countries around the world that has for several years, but it even happened in the United States, uh, almost in, or, well, not for many of us, but for some of us in living memory, uh, that did happen. And, and I don't see why it can't happen again. In fact, that's my base case uh, projection. So actually I was gonna ask you about the fixed supply of gold, but I think this is a very important point. Can you explain to the audience? So, you know, let's actually go through the scenario. How does this happen? How do we reach negative 40% real rates, um, because I think this sets up its, uh, a following up discussion that we should have, uh, but this is a part of the blocking and tackling. So negative 40% real, real yield is, again, something that's very hard to grok, very hard to get your mind around. How the heck does that even happen? So it's not done by changing the policy rate. So whether the Fed rate is 25 beeps, 50 beeps, 2%, zero, uh, at, at some point, that's not the main dictation, not, not the main factor dictating where real rates or real returns are. Uh, it's really driven by inflation. So let's say I have an effective policy rate of zero. My T-bills are sold at zero yield, uh, but um, I've got 40% annual inflation. Uh, you know, again, it just sounds just shocking and almost laughable to, and the more sophisticated intellectual you are, so that's just ridiculous. But we're seeing it. Look at the price of gasoline in the United States uh, year over year. Look at look at the price of various commodities. We saw the big spike in lumber prices uh, just right across the board. Uh, you're hard pressed to find a bicycle uh, in North America this summer. So there, it is possible. To, it has happened in the United States uh, in the last hundred years. It is happening as we speak in other countries, and, and there's, of course, the, the hyperinflation examples of Venezuela, Zimbabwe, Weimar, German, <laughs> and so forth. Uh, but th this, to me, is actually my base case now, and that's how we get that uh, hugely negative uh, real return is not through uh, uh, policy rates or any, anything set by the, the Federal Reserve or any other central bank uh, or institution but really through inflation and the market dynamics of that uh, following through to what your actual return is. It's such a fascinating time for us. I mean, Shimon and I talk about this all the time. You know, my base case, and this is where I, I kind of disagree with you, although I agree with all the premises that we're actually going to see deflation. And that's because of all the technological advancement that we have. But it's we have these two market forces. I almost see this as boiling water. It's kind of like whack-a-mole. The bubbles are 
bubbling up in different places. We had lumber spike, copper spike, bicycles, you know, so there's, there's these transitory effects. Some are going to stay. There are labor effects, uh, probably not going to go away. There is, there are supply chain effects. There is the insane money printing that we have in the QE that they're, you know, thinking about, thinking about, talking about, talking about, right. And, and tapering and, uh, and I don't know when they're going to taper that and all these things, it's like the market, especially it, it, this whole year can't figure itself out. You know, is it inflation? Is it deflation? Is it, you know, coming up? Is it transitory? So it's, it's going to be fascinating. I think, like I said, years back, look, looking back on this to see what is actually happening, right. And, and what, how the market will settle out. But, um, I, I want to bring you back to one quick thing. I want to get this, this out of the way because I think it's, it's important to understand. You said way back in the beginning, uh, I just want to check the box and, I, and make sure I understand it. You said, hey, when we mine one to 2% more gold, right, per year, it doesn't really change the price. Can you just help explain that? Um, yes, one to 2% doesn't move the price in and of itself, but how hard is it to mine more gold? What's, you know, is the supply actually fixed, right? Um, and, and, you know, what's, we talked about the intrinsic uh, value of gold, you know, goes to Samsung, let's say for chips, a lot of it is used for jewelry, depending on where you are. India obviously is a big jewelry market for gold. It can be used for, um, uh, as a conductor of electricity. It's a great conductor of electricity, but is it used for these things? Is there intrinsic value? How hard is it to get actually more of it? So if I, you know, gold price goes up to 10,000 in real terms, are we going to see all mining and more mining come online and, and go out and, you know, get more gold? So uh, that's a great question. And I think also brought to the forefront by Michael Saylor, uh, one of the, of course, famously, one of the main proponents of Bitcoin, uh, at least for the last six months or so. Uh, and what he would uh, said uh, frequently in, in his um, musings on, on Bitcoin and, and gold versus Bitcoin is, yeah, but, you know, um, the, the the number of the amount of gold out there increases by uh, one or two percent every year and but if the price doubled or tripled or quadrupled people would find a way to produce more gold and uh, there would be huge profit margins in it for them and uh, humans are creative and technology is always improving uh, I, I'm going to give you uh, uh, a pretty lengthy and detailed answer on this one because I think it's a it, it's a really a critical question uh, Few observations. Number one, the last cycle uh, where we saw gold started around $250 an ounce about 20 years ago, peaked at 19, just over $1,900. Uh, that's a huge move. So it almost uh, octupled um, during a, a relatively short time period and then held much of that gain. So it, uh, it came down to close to a thousand again, but for the most part, it was above 1200. So uh, four or five X where it started huge change in, in, in price terms. What happened with gold miners and the production of gold? Uh, the uh, discoveries did not increase. In fact, if you look over the last 20 years of this now much higher gold price, the amount of gold discovered, despite billions and billions of dollars being thrown at it and increasingly sophisticated and, and innovative technology being thrown at it, it, it's actually gone down. So those are hard numbers we can reflect on and we can see that we'll probably have a few years ahead of us of actually declining gold production, no matter what happens to price right now. Uh, so that's a, a proof in the, is in the pudding example where we've seen a huge increase in, in uh, 
in prices uh, and no follow through, total inelasticity of supply. Trust me, if I could make twice as much gold, I would make twice as much gold, uh, just can't do it. Uh, second observation about that cycle is uh, where prices were. Imagine for years you're at 250 or $300 an ounce. Well, what did your operating cost have to be as a miner? Less than that, obviously. Otherwise, you wouldn't be operating for very long, would you? Now, where is it industry-wide now today? It's about uh, $1,000 an ounce on an all-in basis. So great margins uh, for people at uh, with gold sitting close to $1,900. But that price is, uh, that is a, a sum of all the costs of operating uh, a gold mine is going up and up and up and up. Obviously, when the cycle started, it wasn't $1,000 an ounce because gold was at 250. It was 150, it was 200, it was 225. So the operating cost for gold miners just totally tracks inflation as well. Uh, in fact, as you get scarcity, uh, like in any industry of people, of prices, of your input commodities, like remember when you're gold mining, you're very dependent on cyanide, you purchase oxygen, you're purchasing steel ball bearings, you're, you're, you're basically a purchaser of a lot of commodities. You're also consuming a lot of energy, uh, whether it's diesel, electricity, if you're very lucky and on a grid, uh, gasoline, et cetera. Uh, so you have these huge input costs that are also tied to inflation. So the operating cost is going up. The finding cost is going up. And one final sort of bigger picture step, two, three, four, five, steps backwards and looking at the macro on gold. And I have this great location on our, uh, one of our, uh, near one of our mining operations in Botswana, where you can see standing in one place, a thousand years of evolution in gold mining. So uh, a thousand years ago, you kind of needed a hundred grams per ton kind of grade, triple digit grades of visible gold where you know, uh, ancient miners uh, or medieval miners, would, depending on where you are, uh, would see the gold, they would mine it, they would use chemicals, uh, very simple chemical processes and physical processes to extract and isolate that gold. And there's an outcropping of limestone where you could see uh, holes that were made by ancient miners uh, using very basic chemical processes to extract gold from that 100 plus grams, per, it would have to be. Uh, for them to be able to identify and extract that gold. Immediately adjacent to that limestone rock, which is eight, 900 years old, uh, that working at, at least, is a stamp mill from the 1800s. And this is a very arid uh, desert-like uh, environment next to the Kalahari. It's like it was uh, manufactured 10 years ago. It's standing there in perfect condition. You could read the nameplate. Uh, it was uh, manufactured by a British company in Zimbabwe. And it was uh, used in uh, in Botswana, uh, and, and the stamp mill is basically a hammer going up and down, smashing rocks into smaller and smaller pieces. For that to work to extract gold, you need a grade of 10 grams per ton or higher. So you've gone from 100, 1,000 years ago, 100 grams a ton, to 10 grams a ton as your necessary for your prevailing technology of the day in 100 years ago. So took you took you a, a millennium uh, to uh, to to go down by an order of magnitude and grade because your technology has improved. Now 100 years goes by, not a thousand, a hundred, and you're in the year 2021. Average gate grade for the gold mining industry one gram per ton. So if you find something now and it's a big deposit and it's two grams per ton, hallelujah, high fives. We're making we're making big money. 
uh, guys are extracting gold from 0.5 grams, 0 0.6, 0 0.4. Um, and you know what? That number is only going to go down because our technology is going to get better. But you have to, it, it's, it's, um, you're moving that much more rock. You have that much more technical challenge. You're throwing all this at it. And that's what we've got to work with. So the, the moral of that story is uh, the costs are just going to keep going up for gold miners. So two things, costs are going to keep going up. They'll track inflation, even with the technology. And second, uh, we've got a thousand years of history, and in particular, the last 20, which show that the that cost of production is going to track inflation. So yeah, uh, it's good business to be in if gold's rising and inflation is, is uh, the cause for it. But you're gonna you're gonna see that translate through to your uh, operating costs. So if my cost is a thousand dollars an ounce now and gold's at two thousand, that's great. I'm gonna enjoy a thousand dollars an ounce margins for a while. My cost is gonna keep going up. If I see gold at three thousand, uh, I bet you my margin's gone up. But I bet you my cost is now fifteen hundred, sixteen hundred, seventeen hundred. So it's it's also gonna track with it. So very subtle question you've asked there, but a critical one, and really. One of the reasons why gold has performed as a store of value for so long is that that property of gold is no matter what you do to the price, we, we can't make that much more money mining from it, mining that uh, commodity, nor can we really increase the supply of it. So first of all, this is amazing. Uh, you know, conversations like this is like these is pretty much why uh, I wanted to start this podcast because like many times I'll hear, you know, people refer to something on other uh, podcasts and they'll just like move on, you know, without going deep. So this gives me a really good understanding. I think I totally buy the thesis of, uh, you know, the increase in gold supply being completely fixed. I, I think we have a great track record of that. And now I understand the mechanics of why. So this is fascinating. Now, Let's think of another thing that Bitcoiners say, which is, okay, great. Yes, we buy that gold will never increase more than one point something percent per year. But uh, this is the current. So Bitcoin, right, is uh, in many ways built to emulate gold, like uh, even from terms like mining uh, mm -hmm. into like the monetary policy of Bitcoin, which like starts, um, it started by being very inflationary and then like every halving cycle the supply of Bitcoin decreases by half, which you could claim that the gold, like if you look at an historical perspective is like that, right? Like the first person finding the first uh, gold and then finding the second uh, rock of gold, it's like, oh, you increased the supply by a hundred uh, percent and then it keeps decreasing. So this is great. But like Bitcoiners will tell you, okay, but the next halving cycle where we cut the supply by half again, suddenly it flips gold and it's the only kind of, um, entity or only vehicle out there that grows at a slower rate than gold. And, you know, some people basically say, oh, at that stage, it will be a no brainer if you can choose, uh, you know, to put your money on Bitcoin or put in gold. Uh, Bitcoin is a no brainer because it grows more slowly. What would the investment case for gold be, uh, let's say, after the next halving? So Im imagine that, you know, Bitcoin grows at a slower rate than gold. Uh, why would people still um, why, why would they consider uh, buying gold at that stage? So, uh, there are so many uh, good points that you brought up there. And uh, I, I've, over the last uh, five years or so, become really fascinated with Bitcoin and, you know, bring it, as a mathematician and computer scientist, the elegance of it is just uh, breathtaking. It's just, uh, I just marvel at it. And, and the, uh, 
But there's another thing which uh, I think maybe somewhat inadvertently, uh, but maybe it was a, again, phenomenal foresight um, by the designers or Satoshi and, and, and friends, uh, the designers of Bitcoin, that uh, which I sort of stumbled across uh, myself as I started mining Bitcoin and, and only really then started to understand the real dynamics around the cost of trying to produce the marginal coin. So you but do mine Bitcoin? I, I yeah, I in fact uh, on a on a on a fairly large scale. Uh, I stopped in 2018, uh, which is a story into itself. Not because I lost uh, faith in Bitcoin, but because I couldn't make any money doing it. Uh, there's a lot of uh, again, it's probably a whole worthy of a whole other podcast itself. But the uh, like any industry, once it's got a spotlight on it and there's opportunity there and scale it uh, professionalizes and you really to consistently make money on mining bitcoin you've got to be a scale operator with ultra low costs outstanding execution and uh, really know what you're doing and you have to be all in on that business uh, you can casually do it and make money but i will tell you you're doing it you, you if you made money you did it virtually by accident not 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 uh, through uh, great planning uh, the, the way people have made money from mining Bitcoin for the most part, part is that Bitcoin went up a lot. It wasn't the actual margin from mining it uh, once you fully cost, uh, cost your production. It's really the fact that Bitcoin as an asset has performed. And so in most cases, you would have been better off just buying Bitcoin. Whole different story. But one, one thing um, going back to the question itself is what's the case for gold and in and, and Bitcoin's uh, finite supply, and as we as we approach the the terminus, um, how does that change the investment case? Uh, I'll take us off on another slight tangent. The the cost of producing the marginal coin of Bitcoin, like gold, uh, but algorithmically so, is very sticky downwards. So as the price of Bitcoin moves up and more people join the network, there's more capacity on the network. It's more competitive. Uh, you need to throw uh, more computing power at it, consume more electricity, and so your operating cost goes up. So you get this nice, just like gold, you get this nice sprint and surge in margin when you have a nice uh, sprint in the underlying price. But as the networks that uh, people jump on and say, yeah, I'll have some of that, please, your, your operating cost goes, goes up and your margin goes uh, literally to zero. We've seen it several times on Bitcoin. And then the price comes down. And you have a whole bunch of marginal miners here, casual miners who figure out, wait a minute, I'm losing money. And that a little bit of capacity comes off the network, but your core, your core uh, capacity stays on. So that operating cost never really comes down that much. Uh, so that, that's, a, that's a sort of a built-in force to help keep the price of Bitcoin higher, which was one of my, the earlier observations for me. I was like, this thing is almost designed to go up. It's becoming less and less of a factor because the marginal mined Bitcoin is less and less of an impact on the on the total supply uh, for obvious reasons. But looking back five years ago, that was more of an effect where if you had almost this built-in escalation in the cost of producing a marginal coin, it's a, a built-in limiter on, uh, on uh, how those coins can come to market. You needed a higher Bitcoin price to make that happen. And once it's gone up, uh, it may come down for a while, but it's almost algorithmically uh, levitated unless people completely uh, exit the asset class and the fund of flows start to reverse. So after taking on those two tangents that nobody asked for, I'll come back to the original question, which is what's the case for gold then? And I think this is 
look, this is this is the big question, right? Is gold really still the store of value, or um, is it almost completely worthless? Because if it's not a store of value, yeah, we'll use one percent of the gold uh, that's produced on an annual basis uh, for semiconductors and high performance applications. But guess what? We got a we got a hundred years worth of above uh, of supply for those uh, applications already above ground gold. So if it's not held as a reserve asset or as a store of value by central banks and on people's uh, wrists and, and around their necks as jewelry or in their safety deposit boxes, uh, that is not a relevant amount of demand to offset that. So if it is not a store of value, it's worth almost nothing uh, compared to, to its current value. The other uh, side is what if Bitcoin is not a store of value? Uh, either it is a store of value and it's something that is sort of a becomes a primary reserve asset, which is not, I think you can say is not unthinkable now. Uh, it is possible, uh, in which case it could be worth a lot more. And if you look at, um, I gave an interview uh, in 2018, uh, I think it was um, towards the end of 2018 and Bitcoin had, uh, was 10,000 or, or less at that point, it certainly come off its highs. And I, I gave a target of $100,000 on Bitcoin, uh, but with lots of caveats. And the caveats were if it becomes a true store of value, it should actually be a lot higher than 100000 But if it's not, it may actually be worth almost nothing. And why, why is that the case? Um, you know, it, there's better cryptocurrencies uh, out there for accomplishing other specific tasks. Nobody has the kind of network that uh, Bitcoin does. There's currently a network value there, but in a hundred days, people could the capacity can switch over. The infrastructure stays the same. Maybe the chips change, but those are very you know 18 month life or less. Anyways, the world can move on surprisingly fast. If if for some reason we decide Bitcoin's not a store of value, there are other very interesting uh, cryptocurrencies out there. So I think it comes down to this question: is is gold a store of the only real store of value in the world going forward? Is it not a store of value at all? Uh, is it somewhere in between, i.e. it's still a store of value, but there's room for other things like Bitcoin? And then to your question about is, you know, what's the case for gold um, uh, after the next halving on Bitcoin? You also have to ask the question, what's the case for Bitcoin? So if Bitcoin is really becoming a, a primary reserve asset, you can come up with values that are much higher uh, than $100,000 uh, for Bitcoin. Uh, but if it's not, uh, you know, where, where, where's the floor? Like, what's the underlying value on it? So there's a big question to answer here. And it's all about what's your store of, what's really a store of value? What's going to drive that? And what role do each of these uh, uh, assets uh, uh, play in that? Uh, and to me, I come back to uh, two rather simple observations, which let, let me be honest, guys, I'm not 100% convinced of, but uh, they're, they're what I have to work with. So I'll share them with you. Number one is uh, central banks own a lot of gold and uh, many of them are continuing to buy it uh, for, the, for you know, the last 10 plus years since 2008, which they hadn't done for, uh, for a long time before that. Uh, which is curious if it's a pet rock and, they, and everyone's dismissive of it, why did they keep holding it? Literally trillions of dollars of, of gold and keep buying more. Uh, they own 
you know, functionally no cryptocurrencies. They may be issuing their own cryptocurrencies uh, in the near future, uh, but they don't have trillions of dollars or billions of dollars. Uh, there isn't trillions of dollars of Bitcoin yet, but they don't have billions of dollars uh, of Bitcoin, probably. We don't know that totally for sure. And so that's one observation. They happen to have trillions of dollars of gold. So if central banks have any say still in what's a reserve asset and a store of value, presumably they are going to, their minds are wrapped around what they have uh, a trillion plus dollars of. And the second one is it, it's, uh, you know, uh, and I would probably draw the, uh, raise the hackles of a lot of uh, Bitcoiners. Um, is Bitcoin is very, you know, some of the things that it's very good at, and this applies to many cryptocurrencies, uh, are things that governments just do not like and are very problematic. They, they haven't really taken too much ex exception to it uh, because I think it's been a rather mild problem. And I think for the most part, things like uh, criminal activity are, are grossly overblown and, and, and totally a red herring. But uh, evading capital controls, uh, and your ability to move your money around the world, it's so good for that. It is just, it's phenomenal. It's amazing. Uh, and, and there are going to be more improvements on that in, 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 in time to come. Uh, also, if I use a reductio ad absurdum type argument, if we start transacting primarily in Bitcoin, it becomes, you know, the, there are ways then to avoid huge amounts of tax and, and really create a, an even larger black market economy. And if I flip the switch on the cryptocurrency argument and say, hmm, if I'm a central banker or if I'm a treasury department, I'd say, you know what would be really great is if I actually completely got rid of cash and got everybody using a cryptocurrency with a blockchain and permanent record of every transaction ever that I still control. Uh, and obviously that's something we're seeing coming down the pipes. So I think if you're a, a cryptocurrency uh, investor, you can't ignore the fact that many of the reasons why we like these things so much are reasons to be worried about them. Uh, because they, I mean, there is no argument against it. They are very good uh, for some of these applications. And, and those are sort of libertarian, uh, oh, I won't use the word uh, anarchist, but uh, definitely very libertarian uh, uh, type values and, and uh, properties of it that are contradictory to the interests uh, of uh, many levels of government. And so I think you've got a, a built in on two fronts. Uh, it's sort of uh, the, the starting point is gold because they happen to have a lot of gold and it's always been gold. And so you're, you're caught, uh, caught that way. And uh, you know, one argument against that is, well, we always bought books from bookstores and we stopped doing that at some point. Uh, and, so things do change. So you can't be completely uh, married to that argument. A and then on the second side, uh, uh, the the fear that governments have at just how good cryptocurrencies are at what they were they were created to accomplish, uh, they're effective and in, in becoming even more so. So th those factors to me keep pushing me back to if I'm gonna if I had to pick one horse, my preference is to have both horses. By the way. Uh, but if I had to pick one, I, I'm going to stick with gold um, for those two primary reasons, which, as I preface this whole uh, monologue, I'm not, I'm, I don't have a hundred degree, hundred uh, percent confidence of even myself. Uh, but that's what I have to work with. And, and, and that's the basis of my argument. So I just wanted to recap this for our listeners, because I think I've never heard this argument uh, anywhere else uh, on other podcasts. And I'm 
it's very convincing to me. You're basically saying, look, Bitcoin will have a, a lower increase rate every year, which theoretically could make it a better store of value than gold. But on the downside, governments already hold gold. And if they had to like pick their poison, you know, they would much, much rather back gold. And so they could like attack Bitcoin uh, by, for example, setting special taxes on it and exempting gold from tax. Like they can do different things to just like steer the store of value function towards bit, uh, towards gold because they own it. Really, really good argument. I know Alex wants to ask you uh, a question. Or, or steer it towards their own their own cryptocurrencies. The... I don't think their own cryptocurrencies. I think that's a complete red herring because their own cryptocurrencies will be inflated at the rate of the monetary supply. So that's a. I just completely ignore that. It's just hype, I think. But like you make a very good point that they do hold gold currently. So you know, if they had to choose, do we support uh, Bitcoin or do we support gold? They would much rather support gold. Yeah, like I think there's there's definitely going to be a fight when the governments are going to come in. I think probably at around five hundred thousand, you know, four hundred thousand of value when when Bitcoin hits the market cap of gold, I think there's going to be a serious battle. Um, and you know, you know, I think Ravi, you're a good company. Ray Dalio says the same thing. I mean, he was a skeptic, became a Bitcoin bull, and he says Bitcoin's greatest weakness is its success. Because the bigger it gets, governments are going to come after. It. I think there, you know, there are many theses. I, I, I know we we should wrap, but uh, uh, maybe we can have you on again because it would be great to have this discussion. But there's a thesis to when governments issue their own uh, CBDC, central bank, you know, digital currencies. It's almost an on ramp into this whole world. And even if governments, let's say, all of the governments ban bitcoin first of all i don't think that's ever going to happen because there's too much of a prisoner's dilemma for one country to come out and say you know what we'll actually support bitcoin a la salvador that just you know uh, el salvador came out and now is using as a legal tender so all you have to do is vpn in and there's a lot of fud like you said about list activity a lot of fud about china for example but china banned google and facebook and they're doing quite well right so um they're, they're, they're doing pretty well so i i that's and they're banning miners. Let the miners come and use renewables in the in North America and so on. Um, but it's it's definitely an interesting argument to say, well, look, we already have gold, so we're going to double down on that. We don't want to lose what we have. And not only are we losing from a central bank government perspective, not only are we losing capital controls, we are also losing our store of value because they do hold, you know, gold. Um, uh, like I said, as a store of value, they hold a lot of gold. So that's, I think that is, there's always this Bitcoin versus gold and both Shimon and I are very tech forward and we come out of tech. And so we believe technology disrupts. Like you said, we used to sell books. Now we have Kindles, but we still sell books, right? And so the biggest argument, the most convincing argument to me about why gold still has a place. And I really do believe that gold won't be completely disrupted. It will still have a place, <clears throat> excuse me, is that central banks already have a store of gold and they won't want to get rid of that, right? There's, it's, it, there's a, th this value going to zero just won't happen, which I know some Bitcoiners, um, the, the very kind of maxi crypto anarchist Bitcoiners want that to happen. It will, it will, Bitcoin will take over the dollar, it'll take over gold. I don't think that's going to happen, but I do believe there's a place for both, right? And I do believe as we become more and more 
this is in a way long term, but you know, it's Elon's vision of interplanetary species, whether that happens in 50, 100, 200, or 500 years, who knows when, but we will need one store value that is very fungible, very transportable, and no government can control that because we will no longer be, we will be a planetary species, right? We're not no longer going to be a country species. Do you believe that gold and Bitcoin can coexist? Do you believe they can coexist in general? And can they coexist in a portfolio? Uh, uh, I think the answer from my standpoint is yes to all of those. And um, uh, I, I, you know, whenever I discuss Bitcoin, I, I do back away slightly and say, you know, it could be something else too. It could be another cryptocurrency. It could be one that's out there or it could be uh, one that's uh, yet to develop. Hardcore um, finance coin, by the way, everyone go, go buy that. Can't wait. <laughs> totally kidding. Uh, totally kidding. It, you need a shorter name uh, <laughs> and, and maybe throw an animal in there too. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I, I, I don't, you know, it, to me, uh, I think, you know, I, I've spent just an enormous amount of time debating you know, with myself, uh, just arguing with myself in my own head over Bitcoin. And uh, I'll say, like, on one hand, you have this huge value to the network. So you got more people on the, whether you're actually transacting or buying sandwiches or coffees with Bitcoin, I, I don't think that's relevant. Uh, uh, and that's a misnomer to say that there's no use case. If it's a store of value, you know, I don't, I've never spent gold to go buy a pizza uh, or, or a cup of coffee. Uh, so it, that, that doesn't uh, undermine its argument as a store of value. Uh, but you have this huge value, the network effect in, in play here. And I, I, I dumb it down for myself by saying, well, what's WhatsApp? Uh, WhatsApp is, uh, there's, there's nothing that can't be re reproduced there technologically. Um, in fact, there were some other competitors that were very good or even better, I would argue, than WhatsApp. But uh, a billion plus people use WhatsApp, therefore WhatsApp is valuable. Uh, it, it's a network effect and, and Bitcoin is no different. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, my argument from earlier, I, I still have keeps popping up in the back of my head saying, we, could, we, we can also adopt new cryptocurrencies. And in the short term, that probably creates a lot of confusion for people trying to wrap their head around it for the first time, or, or even like me, who've been noodling on this for half a decade. Uh, and distraction and noise. And we've seen that with, uh, you know, just with uh, Mr. Musk's tweets and, and uh, confusing uh, posts at times, uh, causing huge moves in, in various uh, coins uh, for no real fundamental reason. Uh, it just really more creating confusion than anything else. So I, I would say room for uh, gold, room for Bitcoin with the store of value argument and room for potentially other cryptocurrencies uh, that have other uh, functional roles, uh, have maybe interesting speculative roles. There's, you know, you say it's a speculative asset or it's a bubble or something like that, but assets go up and down in value and there's nothing wrong with buying one um, because you think it might go up and maybe it does go up. So there's a role for that in your portfolio too, for some of us. So I, I, I like to put cryptocurrencies into, into two buckets. Uh, one is Bitcoin and, and potential other stores of value. And number two is um, other potentially useful cryptocurrencies uh, where I make, might make money on them or they might uh, serve some sort of very uh, specific use uh, in the future and may appreciate in value as a result or, or just for that reason, be an important part of a portfolio. So 
again, I'm, I'm giving a complicated answer to a, a simple question. My answer is yes to all. There's room for all those assets. Uh, there is room for Bitcoin uh, or another cryptocurrency store of value to coexist with gold. And I think I add the additional bucket, which is there's other um, interesting investments for a variety of reasons in other cryptocurrencies and other parts of the ecosystem as well. Maybe miners, maybe guys doing interesting DeFi stuff uh, in around that ecosystem. There's, you know, we could go on for hours about the other opportunities and, and most of them haven't even been thought of or implemented yet. Yeah, I mean, I uh, just wanted to say that this is uh, maybe the first time where I disagree with you, but I, I just want to share it with our listeners. I really think that in the store of value category uh, of cryptocurrencies, I don't think any other cryptocurrency has even a chance of, of competing with Bitcoin. And I'll tell you why. So yesterday I was like, I had a surreal experience. So I was in Twitter spaces talking about there was a, a you know a friend of mine started like a twitter space talking about el salvador and the bill suddenly we see the brother of the president joining the twitter spaces and he's like hey yeah i'm the brother a brother of the president i'm like you know his campaign manager and i saw this on twitter so i decided to join and then more and more people started entering the room at some point the coalition stopped like their speeches and the opposition started and he was like giving us live updates from the bill that was being voted on he's like oh the opposition now is, is speaking uh you know and we have something like a filibuster only it can only last like 40 minutes because like they only get like five minutes each or something uh so in the meantime let's see if my brother can join suddenly the president of el salvador joins our twitter space and starts like talking to us and starts talking about bitcoin and how uh, you know he really believes in it and so forth. Now, look, El Salvador doesn't have, they're dollarized, they use the dollar as their currency, so they're not giving up a monetary policy, but uh, it was surreal. You know, and he, he had a lot of insights actually about uh, Bitcoin, he, he was pretty, his knowledge was pretty deep. And, uh, and, and then at some point somebody said, hey, you, you have geothermal energy uh, in your country, like why don't you use it for mining Bitcoin? He's like, oh my God, I never thought of that. That's great. And then now today he tweeted that he is instructing the geothermal uh, electricity plants to like, you know, uh, mine Bitcoin and stuff. It's just surreal, the, the time we're living in. But I just wanted to say, El Salvador would never choose a different cryptocurrency uh, as their own legal tender because there's no other cryptocurrency that's not controlled by a few people, right? So like Bitcoin is really the only one that is decentralized enough so you could actually put a meaningful amount of money in it without being afraid that uh, you know someone can confiscate it not not by hacking the uh, the protocol but just by like you know whatever taking ten people putting them in jail and saying you know unless you change it you're not getting out so I really don't think that store of value can be done in the crypto space uh, by another I, I I think you have a point there and it goes to my point of like why is WhatsApp valuable is because a billion people use it. And Bitcoin has that network effect working for it and sort of an order of magnitude uh, beyond anything else out there right now. The only thought bubble I'll leave you with on that argument is I would have said the same thing about Skype a few years ago. We all used Skype and it was great. And now I never use Skype. Uh, so I don't know how many people use Skype at its peak, but it was a lot. Uh, the other, maybe the other conclusion is, you know, is wrecked because Microsoft bought it, but whatever. Um, <laughs> There are other examples of things that were, you know, unthinkable, and then, you know, that's never going to change. Uh, and then something else came along. I, I can't imagine uh, something completely supplanting or displacing uh, WhatsApp, 
But you know what? I bet something will <laughs> at, some, at some point. I don't know what it is. I, I have no idea why, but uh, some, something will uh, at some point. And, and I think, you know, just as gold is at risk of a complete disruption and paradigm shift, I think you also have to consider any particular uh, coin. Uh, you know, there could be something else that comes along, uh, which takes the best of it. And uh, maybe in the case of Bitcoin, it's one that uh, takes all the, the great things about Bitcoin and somehow does it more uh, efficiently from an energy point of view or somehow bridges the gap with uh, the angst that that will ultimately, when it, if it's trading at a uh, million dollars a coin or several hundred thousand dollars a coin, the angst it'll, it'll cause for governments. I don't know, uh, but it's, it's something that's possible uh, in the indeterminate future. Uh, and and maybe maybe even if it does happen, Bitcoin's at five million a coin by then. I don't know, uh, but uh, it, it's certainly in the realm of the possible. Ravi, I just want to say something quick. I know uh, we'll, we'll wrap and, and Shimo will um, will wrap, but you know we've talked to other gold folks before, and I, I just want to give you an immense amount of credit and, and a shout out because and maybe it's because you know you're a mathematician by trade and uh, and you've gone deep and studied Bitcoin um, we're both you know pro Bitcoin uh, again we're both technologists but but this interview um, was the most balanced logical perspective on both with arguments and we can disagree around the edges I think we agree overall around 90% of, of what we discussed, right? Sound monetary policy, store value, network effects, and so on. You know, but but a shout out to you for having a very balanced, sane, if you will, logical approach to both where you have others, especially some of the more memeified people like Peter Schiff in the industry that are just, you know, gold, gold, gold. It just, it becomes noise, you know, it becomes noise. And it's not about gold or Bitcoin. Bitcoiners have the same thing on their end. But there is, I think, something to be said to having a nuanced view of both. And especially for our listeners who are looking at their portfolios, I think a lot of people are thinking about, you know, there's there's either inflation or deflation coming, coming down. How do I protect my wealth? Um, you know, where do I invest if I'm invested in S&P, but really in, in uh, purchasing power terms that stayed pretty flat since 2008, right? If you just look at the, the, the monetary printing that we've had, what do I do if this big rush of pain comes? And I think having a very sane approach of saying, look, there's a place for both. Here are the pros, here are the cons you know, do your own research, <laughs> listeners, so to speak. We never offer fully financial advice, but we're here to bring information. So anyway, uh, you know, kudos to you. Uh, and thank you for a very balanced, uh, smart approach to to both. Uh, you know, look, this has been a great discussion. I, I really enjoyed uh, some very uh, on-point questions and topics you guys both raised. So that was uh, fantastic. I'd love to continue the conversation sometime. Yeah, Ravi, would love to have you uh, back on. Uh, so yeah, please tell our uh, listeners where can they find about you and your work uh, online? Yeah, just look, uh, I'm pretty visible. Uh, LinkedIn and, and uh, uh, I'm, I'm not otherwise uh, active on social media, but as you mentioned in the preface or the intro, I'm the chairman of Galani Gold. Uh, it's a public company itself, symbol GG in, in, on the Toronto Stock Exchange. And also, uh, the chairman and co-founder of Jade Power Trust, uh, 
which is also a public company and a renewable energy producer. Uh, so we operate wind, solar, and hydro facilities. Uh, it was actually with that uh, company where I started mining Bitcoin, uh, trying to do it with 100% renewable energy, and um, you know learned a lot. Uh, you know, uh, let's say the hard way, uh, trying to make money, um, doing it uh, obviously with a, a pure profit intention, and, and did uh, initially make a bit of money. But uh, much like my experience in the gold business, uh, I got in um, in in earnest uh, with the Bitcoin close to twenty thousand, and watched it go down, uh, you know, by three quarters uh, by the time it reversed direction, and uh, and and learned some painful lessons that way. But uh, also really started to understand the guts of of, of uh, how it works uh, in a way that I just even with my background uh, as a mathematician and computer scientist had not bothered uh, to try to understand previously. It was a, that, that was really what opened my eyes to uh, the potential of Bitcoin. Um, and let's say also the threat of it. Uh, so I'm still very much in the gold camp. And uh, if you put a gun to my head, that's the horse I'm, I'm riding out uh, into the sunset on. Uh, but um, uh, yeah, I haven't changed my view that there's a role for uh, Bitcoin and uh, again, other cryptocurrencies uh, for varying reasons in one's portfolio. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again for coming on the show. This was a great discussion and uh, looking forward to having you again at some point. Thank you very much. Thanks, Harvey.